Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm one of your hosts, Hal Bryan. I'm EAA's senior editor for print and digital content and publications. Sitting here on my left, it is... I'm one of the other hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, we've got... uh, not one, not three, but two guests <laughs> sitting across the table from us and uh, a couple of guys that uh, that we are really lucky to have here uh, here in town, not even coming to us remotely. So uh, who are they? Absolutely. Anybody who is a fan of air racing, uh, warbirds, historic aircraft uh, will automatically Aviation movies, television. Aviation movies, absolutely. We'll, we'll absolutely recognize the name Steve and Stephen Hinton. And we're uh, very fortunate to have both of them here. Uh, thank you for coming all the way from sunny California to snowy Oshkosh, Wisconsin. <laughs> funny uh, co- funny colors here. It's all white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I actually just took them around on the grounds, and uh, it looks a lot different now than it does uh, when you're used to seeing it. It's, so. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like going to your hometown, you know, after the bomb went off or something. It's like, <laughs> what happened? Well, the infrastructure's there, but there's no people and <laughs> yeah. no tents, no airplanes. Well, and you so you guys are actually here. You're going to be our keynote speakers at the Wright Brothers Banquet this evening. So if you're, uh, for those of those who are hearing this later, uh, a few weeks later, they are here uh, uh, to be part of the banquet tonight. And, and thank you guys for doing that. It's going to be a high honor to have have both of you on stage. Uh, thanks for having us. It's a privilege to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, you know, with the history that both of you guys bring, we could do, we could do hours and hours with uh, with each of you individually. But uh, we'll see what sort of ground we can cover in in the the time we have for both. Uh, but let's uh, let, let's go back a little bit to uh, your beginnings, Steve. Um, how you got started in uh, aviation? Some of the early days of uh, of uh, being a kid running around Chino, that kind of thing. Well, it actually starts before Chino. You know, <clears throat> my father was in the Marine Corps when I came to be uh, out at uh, Naval Weapons Test Center in China Lake. And, uh, you know, growing up out there until I was about six years old, but uh, it was always airplanes flying. And uh, uh, I can remember, I'm not kidding you, when I was about five years old, my dad uh, took me to see a movie called The Hunters, uh, Robert Wagner, Robert <clears throat> Mitchum, you know, the Korean War F-86s. And, and I can remember Stan Lydray hand me this dime, and a, that's what it cost to go on base, you know, go to the movies at that time. And that's where I started building models. And uh, from there, when my dad retired and uh, we moved to uh, Claremont, California, he was at working at General Dynamics. And um, I bumped into a kid in second grade uh, who could draw better airplanes on the chalkboard than I could. And uh, so we became best friends, uh, Jim Maloney, was, uh, Ed Maloney's son. And uh, that's where it kind of started for me, you know, uh, with the Air Museum. Wow, that's incredible. So uh, roughly what age did you start hanging around the Chino Airport and being exposed to these real aircraft? Well, like I say, before that, it was uh, up in Claremont where the museum started. So I was probably eight years old, you know, um, on a weekend every maybe once or once a month or every other month kind of thing. Uh, and at the end, <laughs> when you're eight years old, really, all you did, uh, Ed would uh, have us collect Coke bottles that were laying around. Or, you know, we used to sit, uh, believe it or not, at what, what stupid kids do. Uh, we'd sit in the P-12, for instance, 
And uh, when people come by, you just kind of move the ailerons because you, nobody could see you. And you could, we would just laugh at each other because we could hear people comment, yeah, what, what's moving in there? You know, that's <laughs> the silly kind of things you, you do. But yeah, it really wasn't until maybe um, high school really got into uh, when the museum moved to Ontario. And uh, my parents would drop me off there every Saturday. And uh, we would... Uh, Ed would have stuff worse to do, you know, from stripping parts to moving things around. And and at that age, you know, actually did a lot of damage. <laughs> Looking back at it, you know, you bump into things or move things. But uh, a lot of great memories, uh, you know. Uh, we had a good volunteer base back in those days. Those old 30- and 40-year-old guys used to show us what to do. and and uh, uh, But it, it was really good times, so a lot of good memories. You talked about Ed Maloney, and and let's talk about Ed for a second. Uh, and it's a phrase that I've used before here that he was saving warbirds before it was cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about what he was doing and, and how he was saving airplanes? Well, you know, Ed was a was a collector, and he started actually his museum started as a model builder. You know, and and uh, being a young man uh, during World War II, um, you know, Southern California was the aviation center of the world. Ed Douglas and North American and Lockheed and, uh, you know, aviation news in those days was the leading edge technology things going on. So, and of course, after the war, uh, a lot of the, the hundreds and thousands of airplanes that were built were, were excess and a lot of them right there at Chino were being cut up and, and Ed was able to uh, start collecting airplanes. Uh, his father had a auto body parts store or not parts, but auto body repair shop uh, there in Pomona. And, uh, uh, I think Ed, Ed's first plane he got was a was a French World War One airplane called a Hanrio, and it was used as a uh, it was a real airplane that belonged to a, a French uh, famous uh, aviator called uh, Charles Nungusser, and it had been brought over to be uh, uh, a barnstormer airplane, you know, in the late twenties and thirties, and uh, it was used when Ed saw it. It was at the Fox Movie Theater there in Pomona uh, uh, as like the theme for the uh, movie Dawn Patrol when it, when it was shown in the theaters. So he was able to get that and and he got a Japanese shushi that was just, you know, here and there and wherever. He just started collecting stuff and it, at the time there was really no value. He could just see the, you know, the, people weren't saving these things and these were, you know, pieces of history and it uh, was just an amazing how many airplanes that he collected and uh, really for no other reason than just to really collect them and have them uh, preserve them for history, really. Yeah. So you've got you've got this great background and, and immersion from a very young age in sort of the, the museum and warbird aspects of things. When did you when did you start flying yourself? I actually got a pretty late start flying. <clears throat> Never had the opportunity, even though with the museum there wasn't much flying going on, and, and it was not, uh, especially the warbird flying, there wasn't a lot of it. But, you know, the museum's been a flying museum, and yes, some of the planes flew once in a while, but uh, first time I ever left the ground in an airplane ever, I was 15 years old. And, uh, wow. Yeah, and it was a T-6, the same uh, SNJ T-6 that we have at Planes of Fame now. Uh, a fellow by the name of Ross Steele took me for a ride, and uh, it was like October. I can remember. I have to look at my logbook. But, uh, <laughs> but then after that, uh, you know, uh, saved every bit of every, – every dime that I had, and we took flying lessons, and I got my license when I was 18. And, uh, of course, uh, through a lot of uh, uh, circumstances, I was able to uh, really kind of 
step right into Warbirds, really. I flew a Mustang when I was 19, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, we got checked out. Uh, for, we had a friend who owned a flight school, and he let us wash airplanes, and we could fly all the planes he had there. So we got, you know, we flew all the Cessas and Pipers on the airport, and, you know, we got checked out in the L5 and then the T6 and just kind of went from there. We had good supervision, too, which is really important. Uh, Jim Maloney and I, when we were just becoming of age, you know, we had some, uh, the fellow named Ross Steele, by the, uh, to use his name again, another fellow by the name of Jim Nunn that were uh, airline pilots and had uh, military backgrounds. So we had some pretty good training and, like, say, supervision. So uh, we were able to uh, hone our skills, so to speak. And being kids, we had a lot of opportunities because, uh, you know, we were, like, for instance, Chino was a, a company called Aerosport where they uh, had P-51s, and there's only, like, two or three places in the whole United States that worked on Mustangs, so Cavalier in Florida, and there's another company, and then Aerosport at Chino. So, of course, we're flying the T-6, and then we had to check down the Mustang and a lot of notoriety there. So. Yeah, I can imagine. So uh, let's jump over to Stephen for just a second. Stephen, uh, do you remember, like, do you have any non-aviation memories as a little kid, or were you just <laughs> absolutely wrapped up in it and immersed in it? I. Yeah, I'd say I was wrapped up in immersed, but, you know, as a little kid, you're kind of, your senses are heightened to everything, so sure. sports or ball games, that type of stuff. But, no, for the most part, it was, uh, you know, you learn to ride a bicycle at the airport or, you know, play catch at the airport. And um, and at the same time, too, I had, uh, you know, there's a couple of businesses on Chino Airport that had uh, people at the same age that I was, so it was, wasn't just, you know, hanging around, following him around, but uh, there's a whole group of little kids that were running around the airport, so... There's kind of generations of Chino kids. There's different yeah. waves of them. <laughs> yeah, different waves, exactly. Yeah. Uh, any of them uh, looking to adopt a 51-year-old uh, <laughs> yeah. good kid? Yeah. You know, Take out the trash. Yeah. 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 Older, we'll see how you do it right now. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Give me, a, give me an apprenticeship or something. So uh, how about you, Stephen? When did your flight training start? When did you start getting hands-on um, in the cockpit? Well, I, from a younger, quite a younger age, uh, at, you know, I went for a airplane ride when I was two weeks old, I guess. Uh, I don't remember that, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he had a 210 and sitting on his lap and can't see over the dash, but, you know, grab the yoke type of thing. Um, formal flight training began when I was about 15. But, you know, at that time, I'd been flying a lot with guys around the airport and Kevin Eldridge and obviously my dad and uh, several people. So I, I had been flying a bit, but the formal training started when I was – 15 and a half or so what were you training in at the time uh cessna 150 cool yeah cool. high uh, high performance c-150 <laughs> that's yes, what it's called yes. c-150 it's 20 better than a c-130 yeah, right? yeah, okay, so, there you go there the skies. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. it worked for doug master that's right yeah. that's but right we're going to come back to uh, aviation movies to in a little while yeah. <laughs> so what did your progression look like um did you kind of know you wanted to do warbirds or air racing, or at the time was it just sort of I just want to fly and see where it goes? No, at the time, I definitely warbirds was the interest. Air racing kind of hadn't I hadn't gotten bit by that bug at the time. But uh, I went from a Cessna 150. We had a, a Lescom there at the museum, so that was the transition to tailwheel. Um, and from there, same kind of path that, that a lot of the guys at the museum took. You know, John Hinton, John Maloney. Everybody kind of has the same trajectory if you will so it went lescom to stinson uh, l5 uh, and then a stearman uh, t6 and then into a mustang so you know a lot of it was still done how the military did it and flying with different people to get different inputs and, and you know pick up their experiences as opposed to just having one flight instructor 
So how old were you when you first blew a Mustang? Uh, 19 as so, well, yeah. Same age. So It's about the something. age of the guys, I mean, in World War II that were... Yeah, it was a little, probably a little old yeah. <laughs> and a little too yeah. much time. You know, I think we had uh, 100 hours in a T6 before getting into a Mustang. And actually, the first time I flew a Mustang, um, I hadn't even flown the Stearman yet. We were out at uh, Davis-Monthan for a heritage flight training. And uh, my dad put me in the front seat of a TF. Don't read the book. Don't, you know, I'll just tell you what you need to know and figure it out. So that was and he led a formation of uh, heritage trained pilots back to Chino. It did a good job. Uh, Tom Freakin's Mustang, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was an experience. But, you know, there's a lot of exposure that way. And then working on the airplanes, which we've been real big on at the museum. And, and uh, you know, the guys that fly the airplanes are working on them. So it, you ran the airplane taxi around, know how the systems work. So it wasn't a foreign object when you climb in and go fly it. You know, when I look back on my uh, my aviation career, my flying career, I think that's if I have a single regret, it would be that I didn't spend more time, you know, wrenching and working and, and you know, do something, whether it was a formal A&P or just spend more time understanding the system instead of just being the guy who gets in and sits in, sits down and, you know, turns the key and uh, assumes it works. There's there's good and bad to that, though, too. You know, when you start getting into the, the details about how it works, you start realizing there's a... There's a lot that can go wrong and only one thing that can go go right. And man, who worked on this thing last? So it's just oh, oh God, a, it was me. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Well, do you guys see the? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. They say, uh, um, if you want to be a good T6 pilot, you become a good Mustang pilot first. Do you guys see any truth in that uh, sort of phrase? Or, or they're both shaking their heads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you heard that before? That, oh yeah, you know, people say that T6 artists play in the world of fly. It's like well. I don't agree with that. It's a fabulous trainer. It's a, it's an awesome airplane. It's fun to fly, and it requires a lot of skill. But, you know, there's other issues other than just moving the stick involved with a higher-performance airplane. Okay. Very cool. You, you agree with that too, Steve? Yeah, I t- completely agree with it. You know, I think an airplane like a Stearman, you're you know moving your feet, for instance, more than you are in a T6, and in the T6 you're moving them far more than you are in a Mustang. But as as he alluded to, there's a lot more mentally that goes on getting into a high-performance airplane. And North American, it's really neat seeing, you know, they obviously built the S&J and T6 and then built the P-51, but the the cockpit ergonomics, you know, on the left-hand side, you have gear and flaps and trim and throttle and whatnot. And going from the trainer to the fighter, they're laid out similarly, uh, which would make the transition, you know, easier. But there's more systems. Everything's going a little bit quicker, so it's it, a lot of head work, like he's saying. So More stake. Yeah. Mythbusted. Mythbusted. Yeah. For yeah. Chuck. Yes, Next week. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're fired. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Steve, let's transition into uh, uh, maybe some of the high points of your air racing career. And how, how did that start? And what was your progression there? Well, actually, uh, how did the air racing start? You know, it's uh, <clears throat> trying to think the first, uh, it probably, probably started. Um, doing you know do, doing air shows and things like you meet people for instance you know my first job where I ever got paid to fly an airplane and this is it sounds silly but uh, uh, Chino uh, Bob Hoover and uh, another fellow that was very significant in my life a guy named Leroy Penhall um, were partners in uh, uh, bringing air the, some of the jets out of uh, uh, out of Canada the T-33s and F-86s so uh, Jim Maloney and I worked uh, part-time there at Leroy Penhall's uh, operation there at Chino uh, started out sweep of floors, but then, you know, you, you go from there. You know, we're always at the museum, but, in, you know, museum is our deal, and 
there's no budget there, so we have to go somewhere for some money. But anyway, long story short, um, you know, having the notoriety of flying the Mustang and, and the things we were doing at Chino, um, uh, it was like in the bar, you know, everybody's having fun and whatever, and it's like, gosh, Steve, God, if you only had a commercial and an instrument rating, you could fly that F-86, you know, because we're looking for somebody to help us, you know, with that F-86 project. So how does this lead to air racing? Anyway, um, two weeks I had my instrument rating. <laughs> yeah, I borrowed money from my girlfriend at the time and uh, just, just did it every day for two weeks and I got my license. And then the next time the subject came up, I had the instrument rating right there. I threw it down on the bar and they said, okay. So that was part of my checkout. I got checked down the T-Bird and the F-86. So my job was uh, I would take the F-86 to an air show. Matter of fact, first air show I took it to here was Oshkosh in 1974. And Bob Hoover did the air show. And then I took it up to Canada and then, you know, here took it all around one summer. And uh, and through those travels, you meet people. But I got involved with the Red Baron Racing Team, um, who were a lot of guys from Chino. Had been working on the uh, at the time was a Merlin powered Mustang, uh, um, and then being modified to the Griffin. So uh, I was chosen as the pilot for that. Uh, really, kind of based on the fact that I had a lot of flying time and I did air shows and I did flying jets and things like that. So as a young uh, 1,500-hour pilot, uh, I was considered qualified to uh, give that a try. So that's really the background that, uh, you know, why they asked me to do it. And not only, you know, I was a mechanic as well and had a lot of resources. So that kind of got me going on that. Wow. That's, uh, that's incredible. What was the first airplane you raced? Well, the first plane I raced was a King Cobra. And uh being uh, at Reno, uh, working on uh, Penhall's and, uh, you know, Hoover's airplane and uh, uh, being with the Red Baron race team and all the things I'd done, uh, a guy named Jack Flaherty. Uh, it was one of the years at Reno where there weren't a lot of airplanes. It goes, hey, uh, uh, if we go pick up the King Cobra and you want to race it? And I, it's like, uh, never flown it, so that's okay. So <laughs> if you want to do it, you sure. could do it. So okay. So we, we flew down to Monterey, picked it up, and then I came back and Daryl Greenemark qualified it. And then I got to race it. So it was uh seventy six. Yeah, right? seventy six, right. Wow. So how many flights did you get in before you actually were on the course? A couple. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well things were different back then too. <laughs> yeah, things are <laughs> quite a bit different. Yeah. Well it's Stephen, when did you uh um, sort of get bit by the bug. You said that it wasn't right away, but eventually it did. How yeah. did you get bit by the bug at air racing? Uh, I went up to, uh, as a little kid, I was at the air races quite a bit. And again, when you're little, you really don't take in what's going on around you. But uh, in 2002, I uh, came, came up for the weekend in between school and, and uh, you know, helped him out on, on the T-33 uh, at that age, which you think is helping, which is really just cleaning the windows. But uh, it's, it's a, you know. I still uh, help here. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> hey, the windows need to be clean. So, um, anyway, we were walking down the flight line as he does before the you know the gold lineup gets put out in front of the grandstands on Sunday, and he goes around and wishes everybody luck and whatnot. And uh, remember when we got to the end of the line, uh, Strago was sitting there. That was the first time I'd seen that airplane up close, and uh, just kind of fell in love with the way it looked and you know <clears throat> the aerodynamics of it. And, uh, and at, you know, at that point, kind of thought, huh, that, how do I get myself involved you know outside of just the t33 um and again i was in school and whatnot so it's a little challenging but uh 
I think I did that for a, a couple years on the on the jet and uh, introduced myself to Bill to Stephanie um, in 2004. I think it was a friend of ours, Art Vance, uh, introduced me. And, um, yeah, I was trying to work up the courage. I was flying the Lescom at the time in 2004 and. In 2005, was trying again. I had this goal of how do I get involved with air racing. Strago was geographically the closest air racer to Chino. Um, all the Sea Fury stuff was going on in Ione. That's an eight-hour drive, or in Alaska, an eight-hour flight. So <laughs> you know, it just kind of was geographically there. And, and Strago was in Bakersfield, which was about two to two and a half hours away. So um, called up uh, Tiger, and I remember it was October of 2004. And what? Yeah, who are you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm on my. Uh, he's a uh, farmer you know so he's harvesting cotton yeah i'm you know harvesting cotton right now call call ld at the hangar this is his number so okay and it would take me you know half an hour to 45 minutes working up the courage before these each of these phone calls when you're you know 16 or 17 years old uh anyway called up ld at the hangar there in shafter who's the crew chief and he's you know more than welcome yeah come on up on weekend or whatnot and showed us the airplane and then kept bugging them every week hey are you working on the airplane you worked on the airplane and uh, after working on it for several weekends, um, flying up there or driving up there, uh, going into 2005, he offered, hey, if you'd like to be a part of the crew, and then we'd love to have you come with us to Reno. So, Wow. wow that's one of those things. That's very cool. Now, now uh, Steve, in your racing career, you had uh, – um, it was not without incident, maybe is one way to put it. You had uh, – um, I know you had a uh, – it was an off-airport landing – how would you describe that? Yeah, it's pretty much uh, is is it in a nutshell. But uh, you know, we had good success with the Red Baron. Uh, you know, the uh, first year I raced it, we won at Reno, and then there was a Mavi race a few months later, we won that, and then it was a few months later there was a race down in Florida, we won that one, and then there was another race at Mojave, we won that, and then uh, then we set the world speed record with the airplane. And, uh, so going into 1979, Reno. You know, we had the, a really good chance to win the second Reno right in a row, but I uh, had an engine fail at the uh, at a most inopportune time and a unique failure in the sense I lost oil pressure and I had a counter-rotating propellers. And, and I went from a, from base to final thinking I was too fast to starting to think about throwing the gear out early to slow down. And I, uh, from the time the props went flat, I didn't couldn't even make the airport. So I ended up landing short of the airport. And the only rock pile in the whole valley oh, oh. center punched it so but that's all history uh fortunately uh, uh i healed and i a lot of good support a lot of people helped me so absolutely but you know but given uh given that when it came time your son is showing interest in racing and things did you have any any hesitation did you ever stop and think you know this is this is great flying but there's there's risk involved well, of course, uh, when your boy wants to do something that, uh, um, you know, has a lot of danger and, and you know, with the experience level he had. But uh, <clears throat> I know Stephen and uh, the the thought that goes into it. And, and I watched him from afar and I watched him up close. Uh, um, I wanted him to be his own man. So I wanted to see how he made his, his own decisions. And um, he proved to me that he could uh, make those decisions. Um for instance, the first time you went out to qualify with Strega, I probably told you this too, but like Bill goes, well, you know, to Stephanie, well, what do you think? What should, what should we tell him? You know, what do you think? What, what's he capable of? I said, 
why don't you just give him a mission and see what he does, see if he does what you tell him to do. And uh, he went on to some test flights, and Tiger says, he did good. He did everything we asked, and he he did better than I did, he kept saying. And so, I, <laughs> so he said, what do you think if for him to push the power up? I said, whatever you think. I think I've watched him. I think he's ready. So uh, he went out there, and I think he went, what, 489 or 487 the first year qualifying or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. funny that he talks about that, like watching from afar. And I remember trying to learn how to fly the course or, you know, trying to pick up what do you do, you know, when you're trying to learn something is ask everybody who's done it successfully before you to, you know, shortcut that experience. And I remember asking, hey, what would you think about flying the course? And, oh, yeah, yeah, it's been such a long time since I've done it. I really can't remember. You just kind of have to go out there and feel it out for yourself. No, <laughs> but, that, but that's then, part of the process. And well, then I watched but how then, he fielded it out. But then, so then I went over and asked good. Dan Martin, who was racing Dago Red and his Mustang Ridge Runner, hey, Dan, how would you fly the course? Oh, man, you got to ask your dad. He gave me the greatest <laughs> advice about flying the race course. Like, son of a, are you kidding me? But, uh, I mean, that is a lot of his methodology in that is, you know, learn for yourself, and it's a better experience if you're making the – you know, tripping and tripping all along the way, um, you know, tripping along the road or, you know, make your mistakes and learn from them versus somebody just telling you, this is how you do it. You know, it's a better experience. Believe overall. me, I would have stepped in if there was something to step into. Believe me, I would have. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, if your name was, uh, let's just make up a real sounding name. If your name was Chris Henry, for example, and you're out there racing, do you think, oh, uh, Henry. Uh, do, you, <laughs> do you think there would be, uh, more, or or do you think there would be less pressure on you to perform, or do you think? You know, I, I don't think there was. I mean, it's going to be naive to say this that there was pressure, but you know, I think pressure, whatever was pressure from the outside, so to speak, no one has put more pressure on me than myself. Sure. And that you know, the core group, obviously, my dad around me, but then you know, Bill to Stephanie and, and LD, those guys, there was no, no pressure in environment. You know, it was just expectations that, again. You're put in the cockpit because we expect you to do these things. But as far as you got to go out there and win, you got to go go in this fast. It was I was putting more pressure on myself than you don't listen to the noise outside. Sure, I, I think that's probably true of a lot of athletes. Uh, anybody in sports is yeah. You just you got to block out the the outside. Noise. I, I would assume so. Just you know, it's a, if you put all your in, all of your energy into thinking about what somebody thinks about you or what people are saying, then it's not a concentrated effort. And ultimately, air racing is something that only happens once a year. So, now, now a more important question I have to ask is, how did Mom take this? <laughs> probably tongue in cheek. I don't know what she did. <laughs> she, she did. You probably twisted your arm. Yeah. No. Now, Karen. You know, she's she, for one thing, she's been an outstanding supporter through the years. But you know, she's a human being. She's got opinions and she's got feelings, and you have to respect it. But uh, yeah, she's uh, she bit a lot of fingernails. You know, she. Sure. Of course, you know, uh, indoctrinated with me uh, crashing, and uh, she kind of uh, brought me back, you know, so to speak. And well, she did bring me back. But um, when Steve started doing it, it was, you know, we talked about it a lot, quite a bit. But you know, knowing her son and uh, you know how he approached life in general, he's uh, way above his years, and and uh, we just wanted to, wanted him to be all he could be. Awesome. It is. Yeah, probably an ideal situation from my standpoint because there was she obviously could have expressed her worry or you know be care like and she she didn't she just kind of was off to the side and just you know silently supportive which which was nice there's yeah. you know you don't have to be thinking about details that you don't need to think about yeah, yeah. there uh, there there is a little mechanism there too with the wives you know I mean it's you know it's all fun and games for the guys you know but uh, the wives are 
you know, they, they're, there's a lot of emotion there. Sure. Yeah. And aviation, I mean, she's been around airplanes her whole life, I would imagine. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the um, thing we have to talk about, of course, is getting into flying in the movies. And I know that <laughs> uh, we have had entire episodes of the show just about aviation movies. And it dawned on me that a lot of the ones we named you guys have been in at one level or another. Right. Um, this could be its own show. This could easily um, be its own show with, with either of you. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, let's start with you, uh, start with you, Steve. If I remember right from uh, another discussion you and I had, you was, was it uh, Black Sheep Squadron or Baba Black Sheep? Was that your first? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, where that came about is, um, you know, the things we do at Chino, uh, Jim Maloney and myself, and then John Mazzala and uh, Robbie Patterson, you know, the, the group we had at the time. Dave Zuschel named us the Chino Kids back in those days, you know. And uh, Dave was a pretty famous guy, an engine builder, and a great, great fella, good friend. But um, uh, we had got a opportunity to some B-25s in Arizona that were uh, they were kind of derelict. They were like the first fire twinage of fire bombers in the United States. They were kind of just sitting out in Arizona. And of course, uh, we had B-25s that we were flying. Uh, uh, this was back, I forget when this was, 75, 6, somewhere in there, 77 maybe, something like that. And um, so we got hired to go bring those things. Uh, a guy named, <clears throat> guy out of Texas, and uh, I'm sorry I can't remember his name right now. He was a airplane collector out of San Marcos, Texas. John Stokes, John J. Stokes. Uh, he called just out of the blue on the phone. He said, uh, here you guys work on B-25s, and we've got a B-20, two B-25s. You guys want to go move for us? Oh, sure. So we loaded up our truck and drove out to Arizona, um, out of Mesa, Arizona. We worked on him. Anyway, that was a relationship with John Stokes. We got him flying, and we took him to Chino. One of them happens to be the Red Bull B-25 now, and the other one belongs to the, the fellas in Colorado Springs now. It's just that's where those two airplanes went. But um, he had a Corsair, and he uh, uh, had just used it in the making of the pilot for the Black Sheep Squadron. It was uh, Flying Misfits or something like that. And uh, um, when it got picked up as a TV show, he, he I, you know, like he had called me and said, hey, would you fly the Corsair for this TV show? And I go, well, sure. But I, I've only flown a Corsair. I have one flight in a Corsair and Dennis Bradley's Corsair. In, in Toronto, because that's okay. If you want to do it, come out and pick it up, would you? And uh, so I said, well, thanks. So sure. And then I got a call from a fellow named Jim Gavin, who was the uh, aerial coordinator, the director of the Black Sheep Squadron show. And uh, and here I'm, the young kid, uh, uh, 25 or 26-year-old kid flying with uh, Frank Tallman and Art Scholl and, and – wow. uh, Guys like that, uh, John Schaffhausen, and people that I'd read about in magazines, and and uh, flying for the show, it was it was a really great experience. Tom Friedkin, you know the you know guys that uh, I knew were very experienced pilots or whatever, and uh, being young and unattached too, uh, you know whenever they need somebody at the last minute, they call me and I go do it, and uh, that that was my introduction. But since then, I had a relationship with Jim Gavin, and really kind of went from there for 20 years. Did a lot of TV shows and movies and and as a, even uh, I do a little bit now. I haven't done a lot in the last several years because we've got so many other things going on. But it's a really great experience. Some of the really great times, a lot of great people and uh, traveling. It was, it, was, it was a good occupation for sure. Well, it it's amazing to me when you mentioned Frank uh, 
well, Frank Tallman and Art Scholl, but, you know, Frank Tallman, famous for Tall Mance, with, with his partner Paul Mance. And I think of them as the, you know, they're the, the golden age of flying and aviation, aviation cinema and things like that. And uh, Art Scholl, you know, air show performer, tragically lost during uh, the shooting of Top Gun, kind of a bridge from... Uh, I, I hope you don't mind, Steve, but what I think is going from the tall man's era to the Hinton era um, of being the guy flying in movies and things like that. And I, um, it, it's remarkable to me that you two got to overlap at that point. And you, the three of you, that you overlap with both uh, Frank Tallman and Art Scholl, uh, bridging those uh, bridging those eras that go you know all the way back to the 40s there's another f- funny story i laugh at every once in a while is uh, you know when we were flying those corsairs we were flying them out of oxnard uh, for some of the some of the flying when we flat over the islands the uh, channel islands out there and we'd been flying for a couple of days and <clears throat> and uh, at the end of one of the days they're shuttling us back to the hotel and there's some magazine reporters with us and whatever and we're in a ball in a van and they're interviewing frank tallman and and one of the questions to Frank, because uh, I was sitting right behind Frank, they, go, they were saying, Frank, well, you know, when you're flying in these movies, how much experience do you need? What's like the minimum experience you need to fly in these movies? And he looked at him and says, hey, Steve, how much flying time you got? <laughs> <laughs> at that moment, I said, hey, I made it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you surely arrived. Wow, when Frank told me he refers to you, isn't that, isn't that something? So after, uh, after Black Sheep Squadron, you went on and did all kinds of things. You worked on... Uh, a TV series that a lot of people haven't seen, but I always, I always recommend it. I always tell people to go hunt this one down. Um, and that's, uh, that's the blue thunder TV series. Now, when I mentioned the blue thunder series, people say, Oh, you mean airwolf? Said, no, there, there was a short lived, uh, I think there was 11 episodes and eight or nine of them aired, uh, blue thunder series, but that was kind of blue thunder, the helicopter inspired by the movie against the villain aircraft of the week. I think it was the first or second episode, uh, there was a bunch of bank robbers, and they were using a Bearcat for close air support, and that was you. <laughs> Bearcat and F-86. Yeah, F-86. A, there was a but, long easy in one of them. Yeah, I didn't fly that stuff. So. And by the way, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't the guy in motion pictures. There's so many other great aviators that fly in movies. And, uh, but I, I, I had an opportunity to fly a lot with Jim Gavin and, and uh, many of the other guys. Uh, some great times you know, you're doing a movie you're flying under waiver you get to do stuff you're not supposed to do you know and that's uh <laughs> it's pretty cool of uh, <laughs> well, you know low flying and right. flying between canyons and you know taxi through hangars and you know all kinds of stuff flying you know? down main street in a in a bearcat uh kind of stuff yeah exactly oh, that's yeah. fantastic land on a highway you know well, one of the uh, one of the other guys I know you worked with uh, at, at some point was uh, who's another uh, well known name in that part of the world, Craig Hosking. Of course, yeah. And uh, so I know you guys worked together on the Rocketeer, and I have to offer a disclaimer: I am, I, I guess, you'd consider me a professional Rocketeer fan. Um, but uh, anyway, yes, was that the first time you worked together? Was the Rocketeer? No, actually. Uh Craig worked, uh, the very first movie Craig worked on was a War and Remembrance movie. And oh. In fact, he flew our T-6 in that at Pensacola. Okay, yeah, the, the Herman fact, Woke miniseries. In fact, he ran miniseries. out of gas at a low level flying our T-6. For one thing, I didn't know Craig, and Jim Gavin says, is it okay if Craig flies your T-6? I said, well, uh, yeah, if you say it's okay, it's okay with us. So, and, and we love you, Craig. But anyway, <laughs> we were doing a, a scene, and I'm flying an SBD, and uh, you know, a lot of other guys, we're all this big, aerial units flying and and 
uh, Craig is kind of an SPD. It's a T6 painted like an SPD, but he's like the fourth or fifth airplane of the formation. And we're flying around about 1,500 feet, and all of a sudden it kind of falls out of formation, goes right, like, you know, like watching him go down the water. And fortunately, he switched tanks. He got the other engine going, or got the other tank feeding. But that was my introduction to Craig. But uh, Craig is top notch, great aviator, good guy, uh, very detailed. And um, he's done, he's probably the busiest busiest guy in Hollywood that I know of in aviation for sure. If uh, if you look at some of the behind the scenes stuff around Dunkirk, for example, from just a few years ago, uh, the the efforts they went to uh, went to there with like mounting I, IMAX cameras, giant IMAX cameras on the wings of airplanes and things. It's really really fascinating stuff. But but uh, we got to talk about the Rocketeer just just a little. Um, Ask him what the worst airplane he's ever flown is. <laughs> yes, I think I think I know, but but go ahead. The worst airplane you've ever yeah, flown. Yeah, well, it was that Rocketeer, the little GB. And that, there's another Craig story because, uh, you know, we're talking with Craig. We've got this movie coming up, and, uh, you know, it's a uh, 30s-era air race story. Um, and uh, um, <clears throat> a guy named Bill Turner had built a replica of the uh, GB racer, and uh, it was at Chino. Matter of fact, he had brought it out to Chino uh, to park next to the Red Baron one time, I remember, and, Bill was an ex-naval aviator, good guy, great, you know, great aviator too. But um, so I knew kind of the airplane, and the airplane had been sitting a long time out at Flaybob. So the movie studios bought it, and um, uh, Craig says, "You want to go pick it up and uh, and bring it to Chino?" And I said, "You know, Craig, I haven't flown a little airplane like that much at all, Craig." And you, Craig at the time was doing his aerobatic act, where he landing and taking off inverted in the right. pits, you know, the double take show and. You know, we agreed that he was the quali- more qualified. He should make the first flights on the airplane. So, so uh, he took off out of Flay Bob, and I, I was at Chino. I watched him land, and he was all over the runway landing. So, he taxied in. He goes, "Oh boy," he said, "You know, when you fly this thing, you better hold on to your hat." And I said, "You know what? I think I think let me uh, I'll get some more experience in a little airplane because I, I don't fly a lot of little airplanes." Um, so I, uh, Tom Freakin loaned me as a Christian Eagle and I flew that around for about a week and then I went and flew that thing. But yeah, that was a real handful. It, uh, um, most airplanes are not tricky to take off. You know, they're tricky to land, you know, any of them that have a little, uh, spirit to them, but this, this was a handful from takeoff to landing and you couldn't even let go of it. Now it was a replica of a GB racer, uh, I'm sure a GB didn't fly that bad, this version. It couldn't have flown this bad because I've watched Delmar <laughs> Benjamin fly, and that airplane flies pretty nice. This thing seriously was a nasty airplane to fly, and fortunately we, we finished the show with it. And that's another funny story. We're done, and we didn't, we haven't wrecked it. I mean, we've been flying it, and, and, and we didn't wreck it. So we were both looking at each other, you know, hey, we're done. And then the, the producer told us they wanted to think back at Chino and wanted us to fly back Chino. I'm not kidding. We looked at each other. No. <laughs> so we took it apart and trucked it back to Chino. And that's, a, <laughs> that's the last time it flew. You know? Time to quit while you're ahead, I yeah. guess, huh? Yeah. Jeez. Where, where is that airplane now? It's hanging up in Seattle in the Boeing Museum. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Kermit Weeks has one in Fantasy of Flight that's a, a replica of the same airplane, another yeah. yellow yeah. and black Model Z. Yeah. But uh, That's awesome. Now, now I, I know that it, we have to ask this for Dennis. Or oh. he will. He will. Yeah. Well, and for me too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Iron Eagle. Iron Eagle. Yeah, that was a, that was a good show with Charlie Hillard and Gene Susi and 
And Johnny Maloney and uh, Kevin Eldridge flew on that. And, yeah, it was, just, it was a good show to work on. So, so what, what are some of the things that you worked on in the movie? Um, let's see. What did I fly for that? Uh, B-25 a little bit. I flew the 38 a little bit. Uh, flew a Soko Gallup a little bit. And, um, yeah, so we, we, we had our P-51A in it. Uh, painted like a german airplane right yeah this was iron eagle three yeah, when the yeah, uh yeah when the warbirds get involved yeah and, yeah and uh i always used to when i started working here i always used to joke that the only reason i came to work here is because tom Poberesny was head of the organization at the time and uh, you see the the eagles flying at the beginning of iron eagle three so really i came to work here <laughs> to work for a guy who was in an iron eagle movie yeah, yeah. and now you know how pathetic i am in every possible way there was a silly scene that they wanted uh, just flying uh, bob hunt spitfire and uh, made a uh, metal frame of a you know legs the idea was you know the spitfire rolls upside down and the guy kind of falls out right. and then he rolls right side up and gets back in but i had to fly with this this uh what looked like a guy upside down just the his torso hanging out of the spitfire so i had to sit on you know these are the things you do in the movies right so uh yeah i had to sit forward and then duck down in the shot to to get the shot of that so there's like that's the kind of stuff we did so. the glamour of show business is yeah, you're exactly, wedged yeah. behind a pair of fake man's legs exactly yeah. but hey you're in a spitfire well you know Okay, like I say, I get to fly with these guys, and they're 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 great guys. We all did a really good job in the show. That's fantastic! Wow. Another one I have to ask about is Airwolf. <laughs> um, Airwolf finally worked in that a couple times, a Corsair and a Mustang, and uh, um, I did really no clever story with Airwolf. Uh, you know, like say the Blue Thunder. I was the Blue Thunder guy, but uh, filled in an Airwolf, Airwolf once in a while. But Hardy Boys and Six Million Dollar Man, and oh, man. you know those kind of shows. Uh, you know, those good movies too. Like Always was a great movie to work on. Yeah. 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 Were you flying the PBY in Always? No. Okay. No. No, that a guy named Bob Schlafly was the guy in that. And that uh, I actually directed that scene where they at the very beginning, and that was it started out to be just a scene they wanted, but they liked it when it was all done. That they sent us out to a lake out of Libby, Montana. There was a little lake right there. And uh, I think I told you the story last night. Bob Schlafly and um, another. Uh, Fellow, I can't remember his name. I'm embarrassed to say. And these 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 old like 65 year old dudes. They're like really old, right? <laughs> they can't hear, and so you're trying to direct them around. You know the the uh, the shot. We're on a, this the shoreline shooting across, and you know turn 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 turn. Okay, go around, and then they turn. You know, and this went on for an hour, uh, but they finally got it, and it, it was a, it was a great scene right at the beginning how it opens up. That is one of the best opening scenes I think in movie yeah. in movie yeah. history. It's one cool. of my all time favorite aviation films, definitely. Uh, so, so Stephen, I know at least one of the things you've worked on. You, you and uh, your dad actually both worked on the Catch Twenty Two series for Hulu. Yeah, over in uh, Sardinia. So, that, what was uh, what was that like? Um, that was kind of my first little little uh, taste of that, if you will. I hadn't done much movie flying before, and. Uh, it, it was pretty cool uh, with the B-25 because it's such a uh, Swiss Army knife um, I, production over there. You know, it, it, there's two B-25s to back up, and we're on this uh, strip outside of Sardinia, um, Olbia, Olbia. Uh, was the city we were at. And uh, so at the first couple of days of flying, um, and it, flying in Italy too, there was no fuel at this field. We had to go to the international airport anytime we needed to fuel up, and there was a... Uh, so a little process, but the first couple of flights, I think all we did was touch and goes with the two airplanes and 
you know, round and round you go, and they're filming takeoffs and landings. And remember, we're at, having lunch with the producer, and you know, with his hands, my my dad, yeah, you know, we could do a formation. Well, what's that? And he kind of puts, wow, you can you can do that, huh? Oh, wow, yeah, let, <laughs> let's see what that looks like. And you know, the B twenty five again, going back to the Swiss Army knife thing, uh, the tail gun position comes uh, off on the museum points of fame's B twenty five, and you can put a camera there. There's a mountain, so after just they discovered that component to it put a camera in it and then we started doing this filming around the island and offshore and uh it was really neat to see because one of us is holding a or I, most of the time i was holding the monitor with the camera so we can see what the angle is and now now you go from just doing a touch and go for the camera but how important it is to direct uh you know the other aircraft because you you have to talk to production and understand what the shot is that they're trying to get and, you know they usually tell tell you that and they're kind of artsy movie type of way and then you have to kind of hash that around in your head and mechanically tell that to the pilot behind you and see what that is on camera so it was a really really unique experience to kind of play that middle middle ground and, and see how obviously all the experience that he has in, in doing so um and then also you know doing stuff that maybe isn't comfortable uh, for instance they wanted this takeoff shot you know roll as quickly as you came behind the and we were the second airplane um uh, in your again you're on this not a short runway but a shorter runway and taking off in a wake turbulence and <laughs> it, it, it was an airport that hadn't been used i think since the 70s so the other b25 is powering up and we're just kind of kicked off a little bit but we're just getting pelted with you know gravel and <laughs> oh, rocks and it's just kind of he's like well you know, that's part of the part of the deal so you try to mitigate the you know the damage or the risk and then rolling and he's over there arm wrestling this b25 and wake turbulence and you know gear up you know power and <laughs> Uh, it got pretty exciting. So it, it, it was a fun, fun project. I think we were there for about five weeks. Wow, it's Ate a lot of spaghetti. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, went in Sardinia, I guess, yeah. as they say. Yeah. Uh, have you done uh, any other film or TV work since? Uh, a little bit of TV work with uh, a couple of HBO shows last year. Um, I embarrassed to say I can't remember the name of them. It was just a one-off with like a Cessna 182 type thing. and. Um, did some stuff for another HBO show earlier this year, and then uh, this last year got involved with the Top Gun uh, 2 filming, um, which started out just as a mechanic, and then it kind of snowballed from there. I, unfortunately, I don't know how much I can or can't say outside of uh, it, it you know, comes out in June in the theaters, and it uh, should be a really entertaining movie there's no cgi in it and uh, what if i told you that there's nobody listening to this yeah uh, now, you, now you can tell us right? I say, right the best part of it was but my favorite part was that so, so technical and the most piece. difficult part was that but wow, the, the coolest unreal. scene is just wow so yeah no i'm uh, i can't believe that all worked out yeah. just, uh, man, man I'm, I'm not even gonna believe well, that when i see that on the but screen that one scene with that yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I it's coming out. It's coming out in June. Um, it should be phenomenal. Uh, I'm actually excited to see it, just based on the footage, the the dailies that we would see, and again, you know, not having CGI like a lot of movies go to now. Uh, just you know, high commendations to to the production and, and you know Tom and the producers, and it, they were very uh, they're sticklers for you know high energy, dynamic, real. It's got to be real. We don't want to see anything that that can't be done. Um, That's Tom. Yeah, and it, it, it was an awesome experience. And you know, after June, I you know talk about so much more. But uh, it was a tremendous experience to work on. And and again, a lot of the stuff that he instilled on me and the movie flying is you know you, you 
can't say no. I mean, you can say no. We we can't do that, but that's a you know not a very positive attitude. So it's more of a how do you get the shot and and you know yes we can do that. Why don't we try and do it this way? Um, a lot a lot of good experience doing that. Well, and you know just like you said, the the original Top Gun was a game changer. Yeah. Uh, I mean that movie. How many people got inspired to go fly? Because they saw Top Gun. How many people joined the Navy? Yeah. I mean, uh, still, when you hear, you know, about how did the dangers and what do you think about, you know, it's oh, just, yeah. it just, yeah. they, that's all about coming out of the tailpipe. So, you know, we've gone, uh, uh, <laughs> we've gone up close to the end, but there's actually, there, there's one thing that we have to touch on quickly, um, and that is uh, the the speed records. Yes. The violence on speed records. Would you, would you mind each uh, just sort of briefly giving us the the highlight of of you setting the speed record and then. You coming along so many years later and and uh, and setting it uh, setting it again. I don't know why I don't well, want to say breaking it, but it was well, broken yeah, in the middle. Totally, but uh, one thing you got to remember, and a lot of people don't realize this. This is a speed record that originally started with like the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis, and all through history, Jimmy Doolittle. And these were uh, the parameters for the record are set to make it fair, you know, and it's a French FAI, Federal International. It's a, yeah, Federation Aeronautical, Aeronautic. It's a, yeah. yeah it's so actually it, Swiss, by the way. Is it Swiss? Okay. Yeah, I, I learned that when I was looking. My certificate stuff. is French. Well, it's okay. in French, yeah, but right. it's written in French on the Swiss part of the. Okay. Yeah. But it's, you know, what they, what they did is established a three-kilometer measured course, you know, which three kilometers isn't very big, but and it's also an altitude restriction and a time restriction. So, um you're not allowed to dive in. You're not allowed. You have to hold your altitude. You've got a certain time. You have to make four consecutive runs in opposite directions. So, so there's really more to it than just taking off and hauling and going fast as you can and making a run. No, you've got to. It's got to be a certain amount of accuracy has to be guaranteed on how you measure the speed and everything. So, but anyway, we did it with the Red Baron. Um, we followed the steps of Daryl Greenemeyer in 1989. Daryl. Uh, 69. Sorry, 1969. He took the uh, uh, his Grumman Conquest One and modified it to for the world speed record, and so he had the knowledge and experience of what it takes to do that. Uh, and uh, prior to doing with the Red Baron Mustang, he uh, went out and did it with the F104 again too. Uh, and um, so, and I was uh, involved as a spectator during the F104. Uh, wow. I got to watch all that, uh, how how it was done, and how they filmed it, and. And uh, how they could, you know, substantiate and verify, and, and how it became to be, it was pretty exciting. And when they asked me if I wanted to do it in the in the Mustang, of course, you know, geez, yeah, what a what an opportunity. And uh, we did it out in Tonopah Mud Lake um, in August, uh, which was supposed to be the hottest time of year. Um, we went there with uh, a whole week. We figured it'd be no problem doing some. Uh, uh, testing and then to go out for the speed record and our goal was to go 500 miles an hour because we didn't have a real sponsor and we wanted to come back eventually with a sponsor and go as fast as our plane was designed to go 525 is what it was supposed to be able to do and so we were trying to hit that 500 mile an hour mark and early on in testing we uh, uh, blew an engine so that put us back a few days uh, uh, Wide World of Sports was covering it with Cliff Robertson he was the personality of uh, Checked him out in the Mustang, and then he flew the Mustang as part of the color commentator. Real nice guy, very, very professional. and uh, sure. Strong support of EAA as well, uh, our uh, first uh, young Eagles chairman here. He was a good guy, you know, glad to have met him. And um, 
But what boiled down to, because I'm trying to lead up, because the airplane would go much faster than it did, but we missed the 500-mile-an-hour mark by half a mile an hour. So the average speed was 499.046. And uh, um, it's like you kick yourself in the butt, but, hey, that's the way it goes. We'll do it, you know, when we come back in next time. But, uh, you know, a month following that is when I had my accident at Reno and the, the Red Baron racer as we know it is just the thing out of a book now. So the, the two other points to that though too, you talked about you know Tonopah August was supposed to be the hottest time of year. Uh, that's another thing too. When we did it, uh, uh, this another part of the story could go on and on. Two of our, our members of our uh, team are, were Lockheed Skunk Work guys: Pete Law, Bruce Boland. Bruce Boland was a structural engineer. Both worked at the Skunk Works. Pete Law was a thermodynamic engineer, and they were instrumental in. All the changes that were done to the Mustang to make it with the Griffin engine and to make it an air racer. And they're actually instrumental with all the air racers uh, at the time when I, in my day. And uh, um, anyway, the, the day we set the record was one day we were using Mud Lake, which is a, in the restricted area, and the Air Force let us use it. We couldn't use it this time of the day. We couldn't use it that time of the day, but you could use it this time of the day, so to speak. And they're going, well, yeah, whatever, okay. And uh, when at the end of the day, the, it was real windy and crappy. So we, what we did is we left all the cameras on the lake bed. And the next morning when we were picking up the cameras, we went and did the record. And we weren't supposed to do it, but we did it. And it was cold. It was, it was 68 degrees instead of 90 degrees. And uh, that's the speed we got. If we'd have had a 90-degree day, it would have been – Still would have hopefully been around 500, but I mean, just take that same speed. The true would have been like 504, 503 or something. But but the, where I was coming with these Lockheed guys, here it is 10 years later We when they finally announced the F-117. Guess why we couldn't use the lake? <laughs> because they were right there. That was within the restricted area where the half blues were parked, oh where we were gosh. using. And But these guys knew it, and they're part of our crew, and they were – they were kicking the dirt and swearing at Lockheed at uh, the Air Force at the same time oh, we were. <laughs> yeah, and, and they knew all about it. So that that that, that was a. I remember right when they announced they announced what was going on out there. I called them and it's it's like they couldn't say anything, but they were smiling when they were talking. So. <laughs> I wonder what the statute of limitations is on placing cameras in an Air Force restricted area, sort of in the in the general Area Fifty One neighborhood. They kind of knew what we were going to do anyway, and and because they knew is how we got away with it. But yeah. Wow. So uh, so your your speed four eighty nine. Four ninety nine. Oh, sorry, four ninety nine. Excuse me. Sorry. Every mile an hour counts there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course yeah. it does. My gosh, I quit. That's it. It's been nice, folks. Four ninety nine oh four six, and then yeah, that beat Green and Mars four eighty three. Okay. And then uh, then Lyle Sheldon did it about ten years later, and went five five twenty eight five twenty eight up in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Wow, five twenty eight. So Which then, leads to Steve's. Yeah, so then uh, then you come along. Yeah. Uh, when I came along, to the record that he's talking about, the three-kilometer, it was, uh, they called it the, um, or some other, I mean, it was the three world's fastest piston-powered aircraft over three kilometers, being the length they measured the sure. distance. And uh, I forget the terminology now. Anyway, now when, when I, we were interested in doing it with Voodoo, um, I think because there had been a lack of uh, through the NAA, which was the the U.S. organization chartered by the FAI to you know do these records, the National Aeronautic Association um, and the FAI, because there's been a, a lack of records being set, they 
were trying to generate interest in doing that. So they broke that three kilometer record into weight classes. So uh, let's say that same record that he did, that Lyle Shelton did, they, the FAI, I don't know how you do this, but they decided to retire a record, which doesn't make any sense to me how you retire a record. But um, that was the ultimate, uh, again, the, the term, I, I'm at losses with it right now. But anyway, it's the same record now. It's broken into weight classes. So uh, the way they described it was Rare Bear's record, Lyle's record can't be broken because it's retired. But if you, you know, whatever record you do, there's a weight class. So I think uh, the record we were going for, which all the Warbirds really fall in the same weight class because it's real generous and it's all kilograms being, you know, metric. Um, but we were trying to break a record that Will Whiteside had set in a yak at 400 and, you know, 13 miles an hour or something. Um, but then there was the caveat that said if you broke Lyle's record by a 1%, which is what you need to break records by, then what it'll do is just erase his record from the history book. So you can't break it. You can't break his record. You can erase his record from the history book, but the record you're breaking is this one in the yak. <laughs> you know, so it's a little convoluted. It, you know, and ultimately when you're doing a record, you're trying to go as fast as you can go. So sure. the, the and, you know, same thing we talked about earlier, all the noise outside. Well, some people are going to say, well, you can't break his record because the rules are different. And, and really the rules today are the same rules. Um, there's a corridor uh, I think it used to be 100 meters wide that you had to keep within over the course of the three kilometers. Now it's, uh, I think, 500 kilometers um, or 500 meters wide. Uh, when we did the record, it was all – we were using a, a strip up in northern Idaho. Um, so if you're keeping it down the center line of the runway, then it, you know the 500-meter increase is, is negligible. Uh, we kept it within the same parameters. So uh, ultimately uh, – it was a good experience, good learning experience. Um, we had some engine problems along the way. Um, and uh, we ended up with an average, I think our first pass was 554 miles an hour. And then it, it slowly- 0.75 Mach. Yeah. Wow. Um, I got to back up too. You know, a lot of this effort was the Bob, Bob Buttons, the owner of the Voodoo. Um, and he was real enthusiastic the whole way. And uh, uh, some years ago we got, uh, met or got an audience with joe clark uh joe clark of course owns the aviation partners based out of seattle so every time you go fly on a boeing jet and you look out and see those winglets out there his company uh designed those and are constantly redesigning them and they've got the split tip and they've got some pretty exotic designs um but he's got a really good design team um one of which has passed away but dr gratzinger he used the slide rules still uh, and the next guy coming up was, you know, big time CFD, computational fluid dynamics. And what was un really interesting to me is both of them, when they got confronted with this, you know, redesigned this Mustang wing is, is what Joe challenged them with to increase the Mach number. Um, one using a slide rule, one using CFD, uh, came up with the same, same theory, same design. So wow. um, Joe's company sponsored our attempt and uh came up with this new airfoil for the Mustang wing, which was a first. Um, and it's actually, a, when you look at it, you wouldn't, wouldn't think it works, but it, the trailing edge is thicker than it used to be being a laminar flow wing. Uh, and what that was developed to do was make sure that the shock wave traveled further back on the wing before it separated, which would decrease the drag and raise the Mach number of the wing from you know, 0.72 from North American to 0.75, 0.76, which is where we thought we were going to be operating with in the regime of the record. So, wow. 
Um, I could talk about it and talk about it on this show, but there's a lot of people, the crew, uh, you know, f- so many guys that just poured their hearts and soul into this thing over the course of a year. Let me ask you, just out of curiosity, um, I mean, you've, you've, you've won Reno how many times? Yeah, seven times, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's a bigger sort of adrenaline rush, running the pylons at Reno or, or the speed record attempt? Um, or is is there even an adrenaline rush, or how does that? Oh no, there definitely is. You know, it's it's a challenge. I think the flying is a little more uh, precise. Uh, your head's in the cockpit quite a bit more for the speed record um, because altitude plays such a factor. Is you know, my dad was talking about earlier that parameters for this record are so tight with the altitude, and, and uh, so your flying I think is more precise to a, a number. Let's say during the speed record, and it, it's a whole different type of flying. Uh, but that same type of adrenaline is there, whether it's, you know, a speed record by yourself or, you know, racing with, you know, eight other knuckleheads out there. Um, <laughs> Reno is a little bit different, you know, plus or minus a few degrees and you're on the money there. But uh, when it comes to the speed record, you got to be right on it. Um, you know, if you break the altitude restriction, then and it could be on your last pass, but then your your record attempts, you know, negated. Wow. So, it's, but if you don't maximize the altitude, then you're not going to lose on the performance. So there's a lot of different factors that go into that. So I know we've uh, we've already gone a bit long, but I do have one uh, one final question for you, Steve, and that is, if uh, uh, let's say we send Chris Henry back in time, which is something we've been trying to do for quite a while, <laughs> yeah. imagine we send him back as a time traveler, and he comes up to you uh, after your flight of four hundred ninety nine point oh four six miles per hour, and tells you you know that someday, decades in the future, uh, your son is going to do five fifty four. What do you think he would say? What do you think? Uh, Steve from back then would would have said that. I'd be all for it. I mean, that's what records are for. I mean, it pushes you. You can't, you know, people are saying, oh, nobody will ever beat that record. I said, well, I hope somebody does. I mean, that's what competition's all about, and it's innovation, you know. And he he played, uh, he told a light story about his wing modification. I mean, how clever is that? I mean, somebody go to that expense and uh, for Joe Clark, to, Bob Button to put that through like that, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's take an old warbird, think it, you know, I mean, yeah, Mustang can dive at 505. Yeah, Mustang goes 505 like, you know, yeah, it doesn't go 505 unless you go, you know, straight down yeah, with that, it practically. That was a cool experience when we were doing that flight testing with that because he was in the neighborhood up where we're testing Voodoo at with an F-86 for an air show. And we dove tested Voodoo to 530 indicated uh, miles an hour. I'm on his wing and with the saber, and I could fly right next to him. I look at the trim tabs and I look at the the airframe, and it's nothing shaking. It looked great. Uh, of course, you know I got the power back, and he's he's diving. But I mean, just shows you, wow. You know, I mean, this is a 1939, 1940 design, and with a few modifications, look what it does. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Yeah, <clears throat> and and those engineers back then. You know, at uh, and the company, we never would have guessed. Yeah, in a million years. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, you know, I start the races in the T thirty three, and it's a jet. You know, it's fast jet. It goes pretty good. Right. But uh, through the years, and uh, especially the last couple of years, uh, coming well, down the chute, an American T thirty three to a Canadian T thirty three also more yeah, thrust. And- right, but I mean, coming down the chute, you know, I've, uh, you know, I bump the throttle up coming down the chute, and you know, the fast guys who know how to fly formation, you know. Dennis and Brian Sanders and Steve and, and you know, Jay and the, these guys, you know, they're right there, right? They come, bump it again, uh, like, and, you know, 
they'll kind of lag a little bit, then they come right up. Bump it again, now Dreadnought's backing away. So I know Dreadnought's <laughs> full throttle right now. And then I bump it again, and Dreadnought's leaning back. And then I go full throttle, and these guys in the Mustangs are right there with me. I'm, I, we're indicating 400 knots coming downhill. Wow. It, that's a prop airplane. Of course, I can hear them too, by the way. Isn't that something? Oh, can you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's oh, yeah. cool. It's, uh, it's way cool. Uh, how unusual that is where you can hear another airplane. Uh, Steve, give us uh, uh, do us a quick favor. And there's something that Bob Hoover used to say, kicking off the race. Uh, now kicking off the races in the T-33, you say it. Would you give us the phrase? Oh, I say, gentlemen, you're looking good. Gentlemen, you got a race. Perfect. Awesome. And with that, uh, gentlemen, we have an episode. Um, <laughs> So thank you guys both so much for taking time to come spend time with us, especially uh, an episode that that goes a bit long. But boy, we could go, we could go all day. I know I could I could listen all day. Uh, thanks as always uh, uh, to everyone out there listening. Thanks for the uh, terrific reviews that we get on iTunes and places like that. Please uh, keep those reviews coming, and uh, we we take your comments to heart. We take the feedback to heart. Uh, you can also leave comments uh, at inspire.ea.org, the uh, website and blog where these episodes are posted. Always uh, email us at uh, feedback.ea.org. That's feedback.ea.org. And, uh, again, you keep that stuff coming in, and it's your good comments are the reasons we're able to keep doing this show. Uh, so with that, uh, thanks again to our guests. Uh, thanks to our producer, Ty, who's going to going to edit this uh, this this uh, wonderful meaty extra helping episode of the green dot thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot <laughs>